This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. I guarantee the daily news is a major part of your COVID reality. The media has generally done an excellent job of providing science-based information on COVID-19 by collaborating with government and with public health. Many journalists are working remotely while covering a staggering amount of information accurately and without bias. Once it was common to refer to the media as the fourth estate, given its influence. Now the term is considered outdated, at least by some. Recent polls show that public trust in the mainstream media is eroding and misinformation is proliferating. So while covering COVID-19, journalists are navigating a complex reality. Today we discuss media coverage and journalism during COVID-19. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I just wanted to remind you that we're working from home to produce and host this program and other AMI-audio content. If you'd like to keep up with all of our programming related to COVID-19, please visit ami.ca forward slash COVID-19. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, I hope everyone's doing well as we get into several weeks of social isolation and social distancing in Canada as a way to prevent the spread of COVID-19. One of the ways in which we are keeping ourselves informed, entertained, and in the loop is by looking into and looking at and observing the daily news. Even if you were someone who probably didn't follow the news much before, I guarantee you are doing so now. And so while the, the virus itself has no moral brief The narrative that we create around the virus is so important and the media coverage in this instance is so important. And so we'll be talking about that from various angles on today's program. Coming up on the program, I'll be speaking with uh, Michelle McQuig and Megan Gilmore, two Canadian journalists and contributors to AMI-audio, about their experiences working in the field during the pandemic. But before that, My guest today is Paul Adams, a journalism professor at Carleton University in Ottawa. Paul, welcome to The Pulse. It's great to have you on the program. Great to be here. Let me get the big questions out of the way first. Overall, how would you evaluate COVID-19 media coverage in Canada? So I would say that it's best really to divide the coverage into three phases. The first phase, I think, is the period January to about a little more than a month ago. And I think that, generally speaking, the the media performed well, but there are some question marks around it. And this is the way I think of it. News, to some extent, is necessarily alarmist because part of the reason we watch the news and listen to the news and read the news is to find out about potential threats. And I think in January and February, we had a lot of journalism from China and later Italy um, raising the alarm that this new virus was coming and uh, that it potentially posed a threat to us. And I think the media, the news media were ahead probably of public authorities in terms of raising that alarm. Now, there was 
you know, at the same time as the news is alarmist, a lot of the columnists are contrarian. And we did have a lot of columns also at the same time kind of poo-pooing the threat. But by and large, I think, to the extent that uh, news consumers even knew there was a problem, it came through the news media. And so it did a valuable function in that Mm -hmm. period. Then the next period was when government started really locking down. And at that point, there was a lot of public service, kind of public health announcements coming from governments. And the media were an important conduit for that, telling people to stay at home, to wash their hands, to, to, you know, telling them about the school closures and all that sort of thing. And a lot of what the media were doing in that period was simply relaying messages from governments and public authorities without much commentary. And that's an important kind of like it's part of the megaphone for public health authorities in any kind of crisis, including this one. But then we've, in recent weeks, we've moved into a period where the media are now trying to perform their accountability function, ask questions, probe weaknesses, uh, examine controversies. And I think that there's as we return to what is kind of a more normal kind of coverage, you begin to have more partisan debates and more government getting upset at the media and media taking different um, tacks on, on different things. And so we're moving into, like in some ways, a more conventional period of coverage. But nothing is convention. And I'm going to come back to this in just a few minutes. But I want to talk to you a little bit about how journalists are doing their work differently, because like many of us, they're being asked to stay home as well and to work remotely. How has that changed the actual day to day working life of a journalist? Well, I think it's changed the working life of journalists way more than it's changed the product we see in the newspapers or on television. Um, or or radio to a remarkable degree, uh, the quality of the product has been very high. Uh, Journalists have been working very long hours and doing exceptional work, uh, many of them without leaving their homes. And uh, that's amazing. But I think it's in terms of the the daily life, it's really complicated the daily life uh, of journalists, not only because they have the technological problems of of, – of uh, how to stay in touch and uh, how to communicate with sources and with editors um, from home. But they've also, um, they also lose the ability to go out and immerse themselves in events, which is kind of a normal part of journalism. But I would say I have not noticed a degradation in the quality of journalism um, from those restrictions to the extent that I thought I might. I mean, I think you do see, see in television journalism a, lo- a lot of challenges around the visual dimension. One of the things that I wanted to follow up with you about is this idea that the media is returning to a more conventional approach and in the way that it's doing its work. And so is there a conflict inherent in seeking information and answers from the government on the one hand and asking the government to be accountable on the other. Right. So is there is there a bit of push and pull? And do we see a degree of fragmentation in the messaging as a result of that? I think that's a very important question. And I think that some of the conflict over media coverage arises precisely from that transition from the public health announcement phase I was talking about to the accountability phase. And you could see this around, for example, Dr. 
the treatment of Dr. Tam and the public, the, the federal public health agency, and the questions about uh, how well it performed and um, the quality of judgments, because one perspective, and I understand that perspective, one perspective is at this moment, we need a kind of social discipline in the community. And what that means is that we need to have a high degree of deference for public health officials to their scientific authority and that um, um, that critical coverage undermines the ability of the public health authorities to get the whole country to, to comply with what are really extreme measures that dramatically change and impinge on our daily lives. At the same time, uh, it's part of our democratic process and system that public authorities don't go unquestioned. We, as a kind of a, a general rule, rule, we believe that the quality of public life is improved by the media and the opposition and other groups asking questions and difficult questions and probing what public authorities do. So I think that what we're seeing is that the media is moving back into a more, if you like, normal um, accountability phase. But uh, there are people who are making the argument, whether, they're, whether they realize it uh, explicitly or not, that they're making the argument that when you demand accountability, you weaken the authority of the public health officials, and then that might weaken compliance with what they're saying to do, and that might allow the virus to flourish in a way that it might not otherwise. One of the things that comes to mind, Paul, is that even before COVID-19, there was a decrease, a substantial decrease of that, in the level of public trust in the media. Do you feel that in light of the COVID-19 coverage, we're going to see a resurgence, a heavy turned a corner where people will start to rely on and trust mainstream media more moving forward? Well, I think that w the indications we have is that there has been a kind of retreat to value, as, as it were, that people are saying there's a lot of junk information out there, and they really are turning to uh, uh, mainstream media, credible media, media that, that um, are systematic in their approach to facts and science. And so, we, so from what we can tell, there's a huge appetite among the public right now uh, that it hasn't gotten rid of all the misinformation and disinformation on the Internet. But what we have seen is that people are going to traditional sources in larger numbers because they trust them at a point of crisis. But I think what uh, is worth mentioning in this context is that at the same time as, you know, uh, uh, these media outlets are getting a lot more people using them and reading them, uh, the business uh, problems of the media are getting worse because the, uh, the in, a, in a recession, which is in effect what we're in, you have a huge cutback in uh, advertising. Advertising revenue falls for the media. That's you know like like that's a big hit on an industry that was already in, you know very delicately poised, particularly the print industry, but also to some extent broadcast. And so what I worry is a kind of paradox that at, at precisely the time when people are turning to mainstream media in larger numbers than ever, those uh, very businesses are may potentially fail. And we have seen 
some of these media outlets that people are turning to laying people off. Paul, I'm going to stop you there because this is actually a fascinating line of inquiry. And I was going to ask you about the business uh, side of the, the of the issue as well. But it, it, it is a whole conversation in and of itself. And for today, right. we're, we are out of time. It's been really nice speaking to you. And thank you for bringing some clarity to this issue. Very enjoyable talking to you. That was Paul Adams, professor of journalism at Carleton University in Ottawa. In the next half of the program, I'm very happy to welcome to The Pulse two people, two names, two voices that everyone on the channel is familiar with. Michelle McQuigg is a reporter for the Canadian Press. Megan Gilmore is a freelance journalist, and both are superstar contributors to Now with Dave Brown and can be heard on the weekly news panel. Michelle and Megan, you'll, you'll uh, forgive me for not being very broadcastery when I say how wonderful it is to see both of you and to talk to both of you. How are you? Thanks, Joita. It's great to be here. It's good to have social interaction. It is, isn't it? Um, Michelle, let me start with you, because one of the things that Paul Adams, my previous guest, mentioned is that the day-to-day, the working life of a journalist such as you, has become very strange and very complicated. So how are you holding up working from home and seeing such a major change to how you're actually doing your job? It is very strange, but I'm doing okay. It's uh, There's lots of ups and downs, and I think that would be inevitable regardless of the line of work. But in terms of the workflow itself, it's starting to be a little less wild. Uh, the first few weeks were, had a pace and a volume that I've literally never experienced before. And all without the benefit of having my colleagues around me. That was a really big adjustment. It, and the support of my colleagues and the ability to interact and bounce ideas off of everyone was really crucial. And that's a huge loss. That's the, the aspect I'm probably missing the most. But other, other than that, I'm, uh, we have our means of interacting uh, from a distance, and that gets the job done, but it's not the same. So back in the day, I used to joke with Michelle that Michelle and I share a brain, and so true oh, on yeah. this occasion, because <laughs> what I was about to ask you, Megan, is the fact that maybe this wasn't a big change for you, because I know you did a lot of your work from home before, but as a freelance journalist, I'm sure things have changed a little bit. Can you share with us what's the same and what's different? So before I would do a lot of my work from home, but I also had the option to go away from home to work, whether that was at the library or at an office space. Um, And that's gone. One of the things that's also gone, uh, this is just really obvious, but it's for journalists, freelancer staff alike. You can't interview people in person anymore right now, which is um, a big loss. Uh, sometimes. Um, So I know I felt that uh, for some stories. Um, Yeah, but then I I have lost some work. So there are some projects that have been put on hold. Or um, I wrote, I submitted a piece just before this started. And I don't even know if it's getting published. I mean, I've got to pay Malibu when it's getting published. Uh, And then I've been assigned some work because of COVID-19. Not all of it has worked out. Some of it uh, fizzled. Um, But then I've picked up other work because you're pitching COVID-19 related stories. Michelle, you know, I want to turn to you a little bit because I think you've had a lot of experience as a journalist. You've covered some very serious stories in your time, uh, the Toronto van attack and a lot of these, uh, the Humboldt tragedy, but nothing at the scale of COVID-19. How has this been different from you and how has some of your previous experience prepared you to do your work? 
It's a great question, and I, I really feel that we couldn't have been prepared for this. We, we were drawing analogies in the early days of this to the exact same events that you did. Uh, 2018 was a really wild year with both of those events taking place within weeks of each other. And nothing prepares you for this because the van attack, it was one one day of real horror and a lot of active breaking news and a couple of days of, of sort of still following some developments. And then, then you're parsing the aftermath. That sort of cycle is out the window with this one because it's constantly evolving news on us on so many fronts, mm -hmm. not just the active in tracing of cases and the actual impact of COVID-19, but you've got the political angle, the economic angle, the social angle, uh, and all of those are, pl are plural, I should say. Um, so you've got multiple political and social and economic angles to, co to contend with. You've got it going across the country. So you're dealing with a, this, a volume and a scope of a story that I've never seen before. And you're also trying to make sure that you don't have wires crossed in a national news operation, that you're not duplicating efforts, that you're pulling on strands that haven't been explored the week before in a different bureau. Um, so logistically, it's very complicated, uh, but just in terms of a news story that keeps going. Mm -hmm. So even in a lull, the news keeps breaking. <laughs> Something that would be a top story in a different era is sort of just part of the day's work now. Yeah. So let me follow up on that a little bit, Michelle. You yourself are working from home, but I'm sure you have colleagues. I'm thinking about photographers particularly or mm -hmm. videographers who are out in the field doing what they need to do to gather visual content. And so I'm wondering if journalists in any capacity are considered essential workers by the government and what sort of precautions or regulations have been put in place to keep those workers safe. Journalists and media operations are considered essential, at least for sure in Ontario, and I'm, I'm sure that's the case across the country because I haven't heard of instances where they weren't. Um, you're absolutely right to highlight the, the work of photographers and the risks they face. It's pretty significant, especially when they have to cover other news on top of this. I'm thinking of our colleagues in Nova Scotia, for instance, <clears throat> dealing with a huge tragedy. Um, <clears throat> Our, a lot of the news operations have gone remote and photographers are left to their own discretion in terms of how much physical distancing they can practice. A lot of events have restricted access to so have there's what's called a pool photographer or a pool reporter. So only one person goes in and shares their findings with everyone else. So there's a bit of give and take there in terms of event organizers and news conference organizers accommodating the new norm. But there's no question that there's a, a certain facet of the profession that's at much more risk than someone like me. Mm -hmm. Megan, I'm going to come back to you because I, I, when I read the headline that accompanied your TVO article, people with disabilities say that they're scared. I sat up and took notice, partly because it was such a direct headline. It didn't, you didn't mince words, but also because there's so little, it seems, coverage of disability issues when we talk about COVID-19 coverage overall. So bearing in mind that Michelle is one of, I would say the few, a small handful of people who's doing disability coverage during COVID-19. Megan, get a, give me a sense of how you feel about the kind of coverage we've seen of disability issues. You know, I wish I could take credit for that headline, but um, it, I, I didn't write that headline. Um, she never uh, said so that. You can give credit to the editors for that one, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I, I was going to pass this one to Michelle, too. But, um, yeah, how I feel about the disability coverage. It's been interesting for me as a freelancer and also somebody who lives with a disability. 
Um, the difference between my reaction to COVID-19 announcements and media coverage. So, uh, for example, when we started uh, self-isolation and uh, social distancing or physical distancing measures, my first thought as a person was, well, what about people who have personal support workers? What mm-hmm. about people who need interveners or interpreters? Uh, like physical distancing doesn't work if you're guiding someone down the street. Like it actually doesn't work. Um, and that, that was my first thought. And I started making some calls very early on to different people to get their uh, thoughts on that and try to figure out um, if they're what the freelance market was for that story. And now it's only like we're speaking near the end of April, April 22nd. And now you're starting to see some more articles out there probably do in part. Um, Michelle was one of the first to do early reporting on this and, and other people have as well. So uh, for me, it was just interesting actually seeing that leg uh, from where I was thinking and then what the mainstream publications were thinking. Um, were there still an absence of, of reporting on some issues? And uh, th- there's a lot of issues that I think should uh, being um, get more public scrutiny, and uh, hopefully some of us will be able to help fill that in. Um, but what has really stood out to me when I've interviewed people with disabilities about COVID-19, whether it was a filling in for you, Juita, on the Pulse or work elsewhere, is actually for some people with disabilities, some things have not changed. So mm-hmm. the concerns that people have right now about healthcare, right? People are always concerned about accessibility in the healthcare system. And there's some people who would never leave their family member alone in a hospital, COVID-19 or not, because they're mm-hmm. always concerned that they won't receive care so for me it's more of a question of what actually is new for people and what will coverage look like when COVID-19 ends. Michelle I want to ask you the same question you've led the charge in covering disability issues during COVID-19 and along with Megan there's a handful of other journalists who are working on this issue moving forward what do we do to ensure greater visibility of disability issues in the coverage around COVID-19? Well, first of all, you're far too kind. And I have to say that I feel like I have been doing the community a disservice by not covering things to the degree that I want to. And that's due to a whole host of reasons, a lot of which has to do with the volume of of news and the sort of operation that I work in and just the limited resources at our disposal. Um, so thank you for your kind words. But in terms of the visibility of disability issues, honestly, I find it mirrors society as a whole in the pre-pandemic time. Disability coverage has traditionally been an afterthought, has traditionally been a sort of niche subgenre of, of, of mainstream news coverage. And I find that's largely the same. Uh, I think Megan's quite right that there has been a, a bit more of t- attention paid in recent days and weeks. But we are starting to see a bit more coverage. And I suspect that there are sort of facets of society that might have a little bit more empathy with those who live with disability long-term, certainly the realities of physical distancing and self-isolation might bring home some realities that disabled people live with on a daily basis to some people. Uh, But it depends, or it remains to be seen, I guess, how long that will last once we do establish a new norm and once the the pandemic conditions lift, whether or not those considerations and that new insight will be forgotten. And I think that's down to media to make sure they aren't. That's a great place to leave it. Now, just before I let both of you go, Michelle and Megan, we're going to play a bit of a thought experiment, and here's how it's going to go. If they lift social restrictions and social isolation restrictions, what is the first thing you're going to do, Michelle? 
go see my family. <laughs> Megan? Or go to a restaurant. Yeah, Megan, um, I, I want to go see my family. They're, they're an hour bit away. Um, there is a sandwich shop in my neighborhood that employs uh, adults with uh, various intellectual and developmental disabilities. And uh, I go. I try to go there often because I like their food. Uh, so they are my first restaurant that I would like to go to. All right. Well, restaurants and family, I would have to agree with you both on that. All right, folks, thank you very much for being on The Pulse. It was a pleasure speaking to both of you. Stay safe. Stay well, everybody. Thank Thanks you. For Thanks for having us. That was Michelle McQuig and Megan Gilmore, journalists who both appear regularly on Now with Dave Brown and can be heard on the weekly news panel. You can also find the show as a podcast. If you missed any of my conversations today with Michelle, Megan or Paul Adams in the first half, please don't forget to like, rate or subscribe. I want to close out today by talking about trust in the media. We need to trust the media to do its job and report accurately and in and uh, informatively about COVID-19, but also trust in yourself. Civil society has a right to hold media accountable and make sure that the stories, the angles that are important to us, let's say, you know, people with disabilities and their issues during COVID-19, that those issues don't become a niche or an afterthought. And so let's try to change that as we move forward from COVID-19. I'd like to thank all of my guests today, Paul Adams, Michelle McQuig, and Megan Gilmore. The Pulse is produced by Andrika Delanerol. Sam Robinson is our technical producer. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. With special thanks going to Paula Deneen, supervisor, AMI-audio technical. Most of all, thank you for listening. Find us on Twitter at AMI-audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI. Write us an email, feedback at AMI.ca, or give us a call at one 866 That's 1-866-509-4545. And let us know if we have your permission to play the audio on the program. Thanks a lot, and we'll talk to you again very soon. This has been The Pulse on AMI-audio. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.